Welcome to the sermon podcast of Damascus Road Church. For more information about Damascus Road Church, go to damascusroadonline.com. This series, the next seven weeks, uh, man, I, I really, I'm grateful to God. Uh, the series is called True and Better, and uh, it's interesting whenever... I was going through the interview process, you know, you've got, I mean, I think there was like 150 people in the room, it felt like, uh, and they're all saying, well, what do you want to do, what do you want to, what, do you, what would you do if you ended up here, and, and I remember the only thing that came to my mind was, man, I, I just want to do everything I can to make much of Jesus, and in uh, this series is going to give me the opportunity to hopefully kind of punctuate that desire, because uh, this entire series is about the whole Bible being about Jesus. The Bible makes much of Jesus on every page. And so my prayer is that uh, come May 31st and into the future, you'll say, uh, I don't remember a lot about that guy except that he just talked a lot about Jesus. I'd be very, very happy uh, with that with that kind of punctuation. So this series affords me the opportunity to do that. And we're going to start in 1 Corinthians 15 today. So it'll be on the screen. If you uh, don't have a Bible, if you do, why don't you get over there. But let's stand and, and uh, I will read God's Word. And then we're going to get to it today. Uh, the specific title of our series is uh, A True and Better Adam. A True and Better Adam. All right? 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 45 through 49 is our text. And here's what it says. Thus it is written... The first man, Adam, became a living being, and the last, Adam, became a life-giving spirit. But it is not spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man was from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of man and dust, we shall also bear the image of of the man of heaven. Let's pray. God, we, uh, we certainly want to acknowledge what's happening in our community um, and be, be, be clear and be honest about how we're feeling about that. Conflicted, frustrated, angry, sad, uh, excited, lots of different things going on. So I um, just want to pray that you'll meet us in that. And uh, I also just want to pray that in the next handful of minutes as we open up your word that you would allow us to just uh, have our hearts united on what you're wanting to say to us. God, there's nothing more important than what you have to say to your people. And and so I just pray that you'll uh, give us the ability and the willingness to to put things aside and to focus on your word so that Jesus could be made beautiful in our hearts and minds, so that you could be glorified in our lives, and so that we could rejoice for who you are uh, what you've done, and what you're making us. And we thank you for all these things, and we pray them in the name of Jesus. Amen. 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 All right, go ahead and have a seat. So, uh, I want to uh, start the series by, by making this statement. Uh, the Bible is a very overwhelming and confusing book. Right? Can I get an amen on that? Amen. Okay. Uh, it's a very overwhelming and confusing book, and, and from a pretty early age, I've had a number of different Bibles set into my lap, and uh, when I started to be able to wrap my head around what a Bible was and, and what I was supposed to do with it, I did what most people do. We, I started at the beginning, and so I was reading these stories in the book of Genesis, and they were interesting and, and, and a little transcendent and, and, and violent and maybe slightly confusing. And then I got into Exodus and it was cool to see the plagues and all that kind of thing. And, and then I got into Leviticus and I, 
I don't have a clue. I don't own sheep. Uh, I eat leaven. I uh, like bacon. This book has nothing to do with me, right? I, I just started to plod and slog my way through God's word. And the further I went in it, uh, the more confused I got. And what I've noticed is that a lot of times whenever somebody is saved by God and gets a Bible, they're doing their very best to track with God's Word and to track with what God's wanting to say to them. But the Bible, as beautiful and as redemptive and as wonderful it is, can tend to get in the way. I know that sounds sacrilegious, but uh, it can tend to get in the way as we're trying to follow God because it's it's overwhelming. 66 books in one book in small print in Old English. It's, it's, it's overwhelming. And so here's what I noticed uh, to have happened. Lots of times whenever we're reading through God's word and we are having a hard time getting our bearings or identifying relevance in our lives, uh, we start to look for ourselves in the story. We start to look for ourselves in the story. And so I'm reading along and I'm saying, how is this relevant to me? Or which character in this story resonates with me? Or which character in the story is a picture of me? And people start to read the Bible in an attempt to get their bearings with what's going on in the Bible. They start reading themselves into the story where God did not intend it. Where God did not intend it. And what ends up happening is the Bible becomes a book that is about them. Not a book that is about Jesus. And I'll be honest with you, I, uh, God saved me when I was 16 years old, but I grew up in the church, and it took me a very long time to understand that the Bible is not about me. It took me a very long time to understand that. And I want to show you a text that I came across, actually in Bible college, that really started to mess with my head about understanding the framework in which we should read and understand the Bible. It's in John chapter 5. In verse 38, and Jesus is talking to a group of people called the Pharisees. Now, let me introduce these folks to you. The Pharisees are a group of people who are professionally religious. They're professionally religious. They have memorized most, if not all, that didn't sound good, most, if not all, of the Old Testament. These people understand the Bible. They know the Bible. They can recite the Bible. If you went, quick, Ezekiel 23 and verse 15, go! They would be able to spit it out. How many in here could do that? Anyone? No, me neither. All right? And so Jesus is speaking to this group of very knowledgeable, very religious, very pious Pharisees. And I want you to look at what he says to them in 5 and verse 38. He says, And you do not have His, that being the Father's word, abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom He has sent. You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness of Me. Jesus says, You search the Scriptures because of what you think you can get out of it, but you miss the central figure in every single story. And who does Jesus say that it is? He says that it's Himself. Verse 41 uh, or verse 40, you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Verse 41, I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. So I want you to, I want you to track with what uh, Jesus is saying. Whenever Jesus is talking to the Pharisees and he's talking about searching the scriptures, what part of the Bible is he talking about to the Pharisees? Does anyone know? The Old Testament. He's talking about the Old Testament. He's not talking about y'all were reading Ephesians and you missed me in it. He's talking about y'all were reading Numbers and you missed me in it. Y'all were reading Leviticus 
or were reading Ezekiel or Jeremiah and you missed me in it. And the Pharisees had to be completely aghast at this. How dare you say that I don't know my Bible? Jesus says, if you read the Bible and you don't see that the Bible is about Jesus, you don't understand the Bible. If you read the Bible and you don't understand that Jesus is the central figure, he's the hero of every story, he's the point of every story, you don't understand the Bible. And so here's what I want to do. I want to take over the next seven weeks some of the most famous stories in all of the Bible. And what I want to do is I want to tell them in two ways. One, in which you or I are the central figure in the story. And two, in which Jesus is the central figure in the story. And my hope for you is something that happened to me uh, maybe seven or eight years ago. The Bible started to come alive to me in a way that it never had. And I started to see Jesus in every nook, in every cranny. And what it did is it really kind of filled out the artwork for me. It brought new texture. It brought new color. It brought new significance to me. And it helped me to see that not only is all of the Bible, but all of history and God's version of history is pointing to this one central figure and his name's Jesus. And that's why we need to make much of him. And so in Genesis chapter 1, we are introduced to the first man, and his name is Adam. And here's, here's how we're introduced to him. In Genesis 1 and verse 1, God steps out onto what the Bible calls a void. There's nothing there. And he says, in the beginning, if this is God speaking in first person, in the beginning, I was. God doesn't attempt to prove to you or to me that he exists. God is not an apologetics God. He's not going to put philosophy in front and say, please, oh, please believe me that I exist. God says the beginning of the story starts with me because I was the only one who was here. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And what we know is that for the first five days of that description, God creates Everything that you and I see around us. And so God creates the sun, the moon, the stars. He creates the oceans. He creates trees. He creates animals. He creates flowers. He creates all of the wonderful creation that we see around us. And at the end of each day, God stops and he looks around at what he does. What, what's the descriptive that he uses for it? This is what? This is good. This is good. And the thing about God saying good is that it's not, it's not like a, a vague description. When God says good, that means it's awesome, right? And so God gets to the end of those days and he says, listen, this, this is good. And on the sixth day, he says, I want to really put some punctuation on this thing. And so God has a conversation with himself in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 26. He says, let us make man in our image. And what we see is that God is a plurality. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And God says, to punctuate all of this creation, I'm going to do something ridiculous. I'm going to do something amazing. I'm going to do something fantastic. I'm going to create the first man. I'm going to create the first uh, human being. And the Bible says in Genesis chapter 2 that God comes down to this garden that he had planted, that he kneels down in the dirt that he had created, and that he sculpts. He sculpts the first man, and I, I think he probably steps back, and he's looking at Adam, and he walks up to him, and he breathes into his nostrils the breath of life. That's what the Bible says. And man becomes a living soul. Man becomes a living soul, and God gets to the end of that day, and he doesn't just say it's good, he says it's what? He says it's very good. That, that was the thing that was missing. You go a little bit further into the story, and God says, you know what, everything that I've created is good, it's very good, I've punctuated it, but my man Adam has something that's not good. And what is that thing that's not good for Adam? He's a what? 
He's alone. He's alone. And so God says, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. He, he puts Adam to sleep. He rips a rib out of his rib cage, and he creates the first woman. He creates the first woman, and Adam wakes up, and he sees this beautiful, perfect, uh, amazing creature. His jaw hits the ground. He's immediately in love. He looks at God and goes, really, can I have her? And God says, yeah, man, I would. And he goes toward uh, the woman that would become Eve, and they are in absolute impeccable, perfect, unconditional, wonderful love with one another. They have beautiful accessibility to God. Adam and Eve are walking in the garden hand in hand, and God is literally right beside them. Everything is very, very, very good. God is at peace with man. Man is at peace with other men, and man is at peace with creation. This is how God intended it to be. This is what God wanted it to be. And one day God sits down with Adam and Eve and he says, here's the deal, guys, I've got a job for both of you. It's important to understand that the job wasn't just for Adam. It was for Adam and who would become Eve. He commissions both of them. He says, everything that you see around you, I'm going to put you in charge of it. And I want you to go and make babies. And Adam goes, okay, right? And uh, are we getting stodgy? Are you getting stodgy on me? Like, that's a good thing, right? Making babies is a good thing. All right. I want you to make babies and I want you to raise them to love Jesus, love my son. And I want you to reproduce worshipers of God. I want you to fill everything that you see with worshipers of me. This is a good story. It's a fantastic story. It's a wonderful story until you get to Genesis chapter three. And in Genesis chapter three, the enemy of God, who we know as Satan, disguises himself as a snake, and he comes and he tempts Adam and Eve, and he really tempts them on two levels. One is he tempts them to question what God had said. Did God really say you weren't allowed to eat of this one and only tree in the garden? And so the first temptation that we see is that the enemy loves to tempt the people of God around what God says. Did God really say that? Did God really mean that? Did God really want that? How can you really know? I mean, in these days, with all the different definitions, and so that's the first temptation. The second temptation, and the one that's really the heart of the temptation, is Satan says to Adam and Eve, I, I, there's a lot of good going on here, but really the, the peak of what God has, he's keeping from you. The, the, the most special thing, the most valuable thing, he's keeping from you. And if you'll just... Go and eat of that tree, you'll have everything that God has. And Adam and Eve, I I mean, I want you to take a step back from this story for a second. Adam and Eve had been created by God. They had been created in a context that God said was very good. God was literally directly accessible to them. The idea that God was holding out on them was nowhere in their framework at any point in their entire life. And we don't know how long they were around before Genesis chapter 3. Satan comes along and says, I think God might be holding out on you. And it, it, breaks, it breaks the camel's back, right? And they go and they eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And what they find out is that the only thing that God was holding out on them for was the knowledge of evil because they already had the knowledge of good. And they take everything that God created, and it was on a trajectory toward the absolute beauty that God intended, and instead, they put it on a trajectory toward sin and death and chaos and rebellion. And uh, this is a, an interesting thing, because uh, if you're reading through your Bible and you're thinking about Moses as he writes the book of Genesis, 
What you have to notice very quickly is that probably the best man who ever lived, the only thing we know about him is the dumbest thing he ever did. Right? I mean, Adam is the pinnacle, the pinnacle of manhood as God determines it. And yet, what do we know about him other than that he disobeyed and rebelled against God? And then he got old and then his son murdered his other son. End of story. Adam dies. We move on. The only thing that we know about Eve is that she, uh, she made a terrible, terrible decision. We don't know that she was strong and beautiful and competent and wonderful and enjoyable. We know that she was fooled by a snake. And I want you to imagine that you're writing uh, the book of Genesis and that you uh, are inspired by the Holy Spirit and that you have an understanding of who Adam and Eve were and the beauty and the strength and the competence and the unity and the, the wonder of them according to the plan of God. And the only thing that you put in the story is the most messed up thing that they did that you know for all eternity will paint them as screw ups. And then the story ends, right? Then their part in the story ends. And, uh, and it's interesting, isn't it? Because if you're reading the Bible, it's like watching a movie in which the murderer gets away with it. No, seriously, what? Is there, is there something in here that I'm missing? I just, um, I, for some bizarre reason, I, I was reading Gone Girl. Have y'all, y'all heard this? I was listening to it at the gym. Uh, let me save you a lot of time that I wish I had got back. It's a terrible, terrible ending. So is the book of Genesis and the story of uh, Adam and Eve. And you've you got to ask yourself, why? Why did Moses decide to leave us with this terrible cliffhanger? And so commentaries will say, well, what God wanted to do is he wanted to show you the way that he relates to the will of man. And I've read lots of commentaries and lots of books who talk about the will of man. And they go to Genesis chapter 3 and they see, see God gave man free will. And the way that we know that was in Genesis chapter 3 and... Okay, maybe. Uh, I've read other commentaries in which they think that the point of the story is the tactics of Satan, right? And look at what Satan did and look at how Satan operates. And the point of the story is God in his grace showing us how to be prepared for. And it's still a terrible ending, isn't it? It's still a terrible, terrible ending to take the best of all humanity and end the story with them the most screwed up. The most screwed up. So the question that I have is, is why and what's the point? And in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we see a direct connection made by the Apostle Paul between Adam, the first Adam, and someone that he describes as the last Adam, the last Adam. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 45, we read it before, but let me read it again. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being And the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that was first. This spiritual Adam, this last Adam, he wasn't first. He he was second, right? He came second. uh, This is not the spiritual that was first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of the dust. The second man was from where? Was from heaven. Was from heaven. As the man of the dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as the man of heaven, so also are those from heaven. Just as we are born in the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. So here's the story of the Bible. It's we're introduced to Adam, and Adam's name connotates where he comes from: the dirt. He's a man of dust. And the Bible tells us in the book of Romans that 
all of us track our genealogy back to our first father, and his name is Adam. And so the choice that Adam made in Genesis chapter 3 is attributed and passed on to all of us, this first Adam, this man of the dust. And Paul makes reference to this last Adam who isn't coming from the dust. His origin isn't of the dirt. His origin is from where? It's from heaven. And Adam, the first Adam, gives us the natural. And the last Adam gives us the spiritual. And some of us are in the image of the first Adam and others of us will be in the image of that last Adam. Paul begins to make a case that begins to change the story for us. And so let me see if I can tell it to you in this way. Uh, The first Adam is in the garden of God and he finds himself uh, surrounded by the goodness and the abundance of God. Everywhere Adam looks, he sees God is faithful, God is good, God is abundant, God provides for me. If he begins to waver in that, he literally can yell for God and God, whoop, what's up? Right? And he's taking walks with God. I mean, nobody knew the voice of God better than Adam and Eve. And so in the midst of all of this abundance, Adam is tempted to not trust the provision of God. I want you to think about that. He's in the garden of God and he's tempted to not trust the goodness and the provision of God. And in distrust... He rebels against God, and he passes down death on anyone who comes after him. Okay? In the book of Luke, chapter 22, the last Adam, his name is Jesus. And he's about to go to the cross, and before he goes to the cross, he decides that he's going to go to a garden. He's going to go to a garden. And he takes his disciples with him, and he says, listen... I want you to pray so that you don't fall prey to temptation. Jesus goes off and he prays for a little bit. And I want you to think about Jesus' surrounding. Jesus is surrounded by apathetic disciples who keep falling asleep when he asks them to pray. Right? Jesus is surrounded by malicious, malcontent, religious folks who want to kill him. And directly in front of Jesus is a murderous cross. The first Adam is surrounded by the provision of God, right? The goodness of God, the faithfulness of God. The last Adam is surrounded by the brokenness of man and the judgment of God. And in Luke chapter 22, verses 40 through 42, I want you to see what happens. And when he, that being Jesus, came to the place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and prayed, and he said, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Stop right there. Don't, don't keep reading. All right? I don't want you to ever think that Jesus, with a smile and a, and a, and a, and a skip, went to the cross. Jesus was terrified to go to the cross. Jesus didn't want to be murdered. Jesus didn't want to have the weight of all sin and all judgment put on him. And I imagine to you that somewhere in Jesus' mind was the temptation to not do it. Right? The temptation. And so what does he do? He does what the first Adam did not do. He goes to the Father. In the first garden, the first Adam is tempted, and instead of saying, Yo, God, can we bump up our walk a little bit? I got some things I want to talk to you about. The first Adam makes a decision about God without God. 
Jesus, surrounded by the brokenness of man, surrounded by the, the malicious, malcontent religion of the Pharisees, and face to face with the cross, does what? He goes directly to the Father. And he says, I've got to be honest with you, man. <laughs> I don't want to do this. But, but, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. If you boil everything in the garden down, you see Adam and Eve, the first Adam, who rebel against God because they didn't trust him. Right? They didn't trust his provision. They didn't trust his goodness. They didn't trust his character. And the story ends with that first Adam passing sin and death down to all who came after him. In another garden, we run into the last Adam. The last Adam, surrounded by the brokenness of man, has an opportunity to not trust God. And yet, what does he do? Not your will, or not my will, but your will be done. Not, not what I want, but what you want. I, I trust you. I admit to you how I feel about this. I acknowledge what's going on in my head and my heart, but I trust you. And Jesus goes to the cross, trusting the Father. He's murdered. And then three days later, what happens? In trust of the Father, he rises victoriously over sin and death. The first Adam's distrust and rebellion passes sin and death down to all who come after. The last Adam's trust and obedience passes down eternal life and redemption to all who come after him. Right? The point of the story... (laughs) then, is at some level to let us know how we got into this mess. Right? Listen to me. The truest point of the story is for you to go, please tell me there's an alternative ending. Right? For you to get to Genesis chapter 3 and Genesis chapter 4 and Genesis chapter 5 and go, what what is happening? What can be done? Like, this, this is falling apart very quickly. We were up here and now we're down here and it happened in two chapters. Please, it's supposed to elicit an emotional response where you go, somebody do something. And the true and better Adam, the last Adam, says, I'll do something. I'll do something. Three things that we learn about Jesus then when we consider him in this context. The first is that Jesus knows what it's like to be tempted. And we've read that in our Bible. He's at all points tempted. But when you think about him in the context of the first Adam, and when you think about him in the Garden of Gethsemane, you understand that Jesus knows what it's like to be tempted. Jesus knows what it's like to want to take the reins of his life over. Jesus knows what it's like to have two paths diverged before him, and one is broad and easy, and the other is narrow and painful. Jesus has sat in the chair that you and I sit in so many times where we say it would be a lot easier if I didn't have to do this Christianity thing. It would be a lot easier if I could just do what I want, when I want, how I want, for my purposes, and everybody else be darned. (laughs) Doesn't have quite the same ring, does it? Yeah. It would be a lot easier. Jesus knows what it's like to be tempted. Number one, Jesus also shows us that we can trust the Father doesn't he? Jesus knows what it's like to stand with two paths, one easy and self-serving, the other selfless and painful, and to look to the Father and say, I really want to take the easy way, but you keep telling me this is the best way. 
and I'm having a hard time seeing your provision. I'm a hard time seeing your goodness. I'm a hard time seeing your character in this. I don't know if I can trust you. The last Adam says, you can. You can trust the father. When, as my mom used to say, when trusting seems folly. Listen, how logical was it for Jesus uh, to have the cross in front of him, have his moronic disciples behind him, have the religious leaders coming, and him to say, I don't want to do this. That's completely logical. But to, in spite of all of that temptation and all of that logic and all of that self-serving desire, say, but not my will, yours. We see in Jesus the ability to trust the Father when the ultimate price is at hand, when the ultimate price is at stake. And then thirdly, and this is, this is my, most, my most favorite, uh, Adam, right, the first Adam, he foregoes uh, the chance to trust God on the chance that he might miss out on one thing, right? I mean, it, it's astounding to think about Adam in God's definition of perfection and him still say, what about that? But, but what if that is better than all of this? And Adam's unwillingness to trust God on one thing passes the price of sin and death down on everyone who comes after him. Jesus, think about this, having to trust the Father with everything, pays the ultimate price. He doesn't pass the ultimate price. He pays the ultimate price. And in paying the price, trusting the Father for everyone, he passes down life, new birth, and redemption. The hero of the story, (laughs) in the story of Adam, is Jesus. The point of the story is Jesus. The aim of the story is is Jesus. The emphasis of the story is Jesus. The main character in the story is Jesus. You, my friends, just got to keep reading. You just got to keep reading. And what you'll find is that every story that ends horrifically isn't the end. It's actually just the beginning. That the hero is always Jesus because Jesus is the most beautiful, the most magnificent, the one that we must make much of, and in so doing, our hearts are changed to mimic and look like him. Stand with me, if you would. A couple ways that I'd like you to 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 think about responding. The first is, uh, man, it's it's obvious, right? It's to come and take communion. It's to uh, remind ourselves as a community the ultimate price that was paid in trusting all things, so that God could pass on new life that happened at the cross. And communion is our opportunity to remind ourselves and to center ourselves on that. If you'd like somebody to pray with you or for you, there'll be people to my left, to your right. And then the other thing that you obviously do when you understand a true and better Adam is you sing loudly, right? You don't leave early because you have to go watch a game that doesn't exist. The bucks aren't on and you don't care about them anyways, right? <laughs> so we stick around and as a community, we, we take communion, we pray together, we sing together, we make much of Jesus, we exercise our worship, and God is glorified in it, and we're blessed. All right, so let me pray, and uh, then we'll go into our time of worship. God, I thank you that the end of Adam's story uh, wasn't the end of the story, and I thank you that the 
the, the, the story that many of us begin isn't the end of our story either. Many of us, in, in fear and in, in distrust, we choose the easier, the path that we've seen so many go on. We struggle to see you as near. We struggle to see you as powerful. We struggle to see you as good. And yet you're faithful to us. You're faithful to us in times and in seasons. And the end of the story isn't the story that we see. It's the story that you see and the story that you're writing. And the, 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 the hero of that story is your son. And his name is Jesus. And so God, and over these next seven weeks, I pray that you would help us to see our Bibles anew, to see the Son of God anew, to see the story anew, and that you would encourage our hearts, God, that you not only are not done with us, but you are not done with all creation. You promise to renew, you promise to make whole, and we pray, God, today in belief and trust of your goodness that your kingdom would come that your will would be done in our lives, in our city, in our state, in our country, in the world, so that you could be made much of, and you could receive the glory that you're due. We love you, God. We thank you that we can love you because you loved us first. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.